The goal of this short three-week class is to just provide a little bit of an introduction to our church, uh, both in terms of its history um, and also historical influences, and then to also just do a very, I'm talking about airplane flying over the territory, look at some kind of key doctrinal markers, okay? A lot of times what happens, especially if you come to this church from a denominational church, is You'll see people and they'll say, hey, where are you going to church? And you say, I'm going to Riverwood Bible Church. And they're like, a Bible church? What is that? And a lot of times you're like, we study the Bible. And that's a good answer. All right. But what I want to do is give you a couple of things over the course of these three class periods that help you understand some of our historical background and then some key doctrinal markers. Okay, that's really the goal of what we're doing here. Now, I would point you, if you would like more detail on these things, Jerry did a series back, I think, in the early like 2010s, maybe 2010, 11, on what we believe and why it matters. And so you can find the audio of those as well as outlines on our website. And so if you're interested in finding out more about dispensational theology and you'd like to press into that a little bit, Jerry did an extensive section on that. There's other things in that series that would give you a little bit more detail and things. I'm also going to hawk books. It's what I do. Okay, I, I share books with you. Sarah, I got church history book today. So Sarah, my fellow history teacher, uh, will be talking a little bit about some things in church history. Okay, so that's, again, that's some big picture things. What we're going for is this. Okay, how many of you remember this thing at the mall back in like the 90s? Do they still even have one of these at the mall? I bet they do, but it's probably not like a QR code that you scan and you can like figure something out. I just remember, I always thought these things were really interesting when I would go to the mall in the 90s with my mom and try to figure out where it is we were going. That's what this is, okay? I'm trying to just put one of these things in front of you so you've got some general idea of how we got here and hopefully then in light of that, where we're going. And so um, that that's really what we're after, Okay. Now, you let me just, take a I, I did not, Ron, Google, Google is a wonderful thing, and so I did not go to the mall and uh, take a picture of that. Um, all right, so just a couple of things about our church, some statements about our church, and then some statements about our church's doctrinal beliefs, okay? All right, first of all, our church is a Bible church, all right? We're going to be addressing this morning some of the historical background to help us understand, because even some of us maybe have been in Bible churches a long time or been at Riverwood a long time. If I said, hey, tell me about how the Bible church movement started, I don't know, okay? Maybe you don't know. I want to fill in a little bit of that for you, okay? The other thing, our church is independent, okay? We are a church that recognizes, like, our own church body is independent of other churches. doesn't mean that we don't love other churches. doesn't mean that we won't partner with other churches for things, but we recognize ourselves as an independent assembly or body of believers. And we recognize that there are other independent bodies of believers around as well. And then we are non-denominational. Okay. And again, that is kind of connected with the idea of being independent. We do not have a denominational affiliation. These things after hopefully this morning, it'll make a little bit more sense. The other thing that I would point you to is I'm going to tell you a little bit about our church's history And there's this little pamphlet that they put out when they were the North State Bible Church in the 60s. And they talk a little bit about about what it means for them to be independent. Okay, so there's one of these in the back. So I'd encourage you um, back there, hopefully not getting food on it. I put some documents about our church's history. 
and uh, from our church's history. So there are, there's an old constitution from North State Bible Church uh, back there. And so uh, after we finish up, I'd encourage you to go back there and take a look at some of those things. I've also included a little two-page front and back document that's a brief history of Riverwood Bible Church uh, that was written actually by um, Rick's dad, Dick Barth. Uh, he compiled that, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. And so there's a little document back there. I've made copies that you can grab um, a part, uh, grab a copy of on the way out. All right. Now, very, again, very in brief and by way of introduction, here's some things about our doctrine, what we believe. Okay. The doctrine of this church is historically Christian. So we're going to talk about what that means. It is in line with what Christians have believed and lived out since the early church. Okay. We're going to talk about what scripture says about these things. We're also going to look at some statements from some of the creeds and church councils. And I'm just going to show you our church's connection to historic Christianity. We do not believe, though we're independent, we do not believe that we are an island unto ourselves and that we figured everything out, that everything was bad until the 1940s when this church started. That is not what we believe, okay? For you to be a part of this church, which is an independent, non-denominational Bible church, is for you to be in the stream of church history that goes all the way back to the book of Acts. Okay, that people, some people that are very denominational get weird about independent churches, and there are some weird independent churches. Okay, we're not trying to be any weirder than the Bible makes us. All right, we're not trying to say we're better or anything like that. We are in the stream of church history, so we'll talk about that. Our doctrine is also evangelical. Okay, it fits within the Reformation tradition. I'll talk a little bit about that again. We'll look at these two aspects of our doctrine next week historically Christian, evangelical. Evangelical is a bad word these days, or it's a buzzword that usually has more to do with politics than theology. We're going to try to recapture it and talk about, well, what does it mean that we're evangelical? Okay, It means that we believe in the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and that it has to be responded to in real, genuine faith for someone to be saved. Okay. All right, our doctrine is also dispensational. Okay, that may be a new word to some of you, probably to some of your, some others. It's very familiar. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means. That's how you see the unfolding of God's plans and purposes in the world and in the scriptures, primarily in terms of his plans and purposes for the nation of Israel and the church. Okay, maintaining distinction between those two, but also recognizing a coherent plan of God that's unfolding. Okay? And then finally, our doctrine is baptistic. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the ordinances that we believe in, believer's baptism, and uh, then also the Lord's Supper, and specifically what the Lord's Supper represents. Okay? So that's our, there's your mall sign for where we're going. All right? So we're going to start off this morning, though, sort of asking a question. Okay? What is a Bible church? Okay? That's what I want to address. Let me pray, though. This is going to be a little bit more history time, okay? A little bit more history teaching, so I've got my happy face on because I'm excited about that. So let's pray, okay? Father God, I thank you um, that you are sovereign and you have plans and purposes that unfold. And I thank you that uh, in your timing, uh, you birthed the New Testament church uh, on the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And I thank you, Lord, that we sit here in 2022 as a part of that stream of what you have been doing in the world uh, in building your church. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said you would build your church and the gates of hell would not stand against it. And the fact that we are sitting here this morning in this class is very real, very living proof of that. 
And Lord, we are so thankful for those who have come before us, who trusted you, who studied your word and sought to live it out in their times. And Father, I just pray that uh, as we are thinking about these things and thinking about our church and our place in church history, Lord, uh, would you show us that what that simply means is that we are to walk faithfully with you as your witnesses. And we have that opportunity to participate with you in the work that you are doing in the world. And what a privilege that is. So, uh, Lord, just uh, I pray that this teaching would be an encouragement. I pray that it would be accurate and clear uh, from history, Lord, and that uh, it would be in line with your word and be ultimately for the building up of your church. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's talk. We're going to look at some of the important historical movements and key figures that sort of lead to the development of the Bible church. This is super high level. There's so much. I mean, I've had to like rein it in. Like I've started typing notes and then I've had to like back out because it's like, no, that's not. We're not doing a 20 part series on church history. Okay. I would highly recommend this book to you by Bruce Shelley, Church History in Plain Language. It is thick, but it's very, very readable and the chapters are pretty short. Okay. So you can knock out a chapter of like eight pages and then take a few weeks off if you're not someone that can just sit and knock through a history book. Okay. Very, very good, thorough, big picture view of church history. Okay. Um, Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. All right. So let's start off. When you look at the origins of the Bible church movement, we, we gotta just, we've got to start in the Reformation. We could go all the way back to Acts, but we've got to start somewhere that's a marker. Okay? In the modern evangelical church, especially in conservative evangelicalism, one of the first questions you'll often hear from people when you say that you're not Baptist or you're not Presbyterian is they'll start asking, like, well, are you Reformed? Like, what are you in terms of your theology? Okay? What I want you to see is that what we believe and who we are finds its roots in the Reformation, although we would not describe ourselves as Reformed. We would say that we are in the Reformation tradition, and I'm going to tell you, hopefully unpack what that means, okay? You know the basics of the Protestant Reformation begins with Martin Luther, the nailing of the 95 Theses, and then what you have as the Reformation begins to spread, what Luther had done is he had come back to Scripture and said, what is the gospel? Like Romans 1, he's looking at Romans 1, 16, the power of God for salvation, Romans 15 and 16. And in many ways, uh, I think it was Erwin Lutzer wrote a book called Rescuing the Gospel, which is a phenomenal little book on the Reformation. I would highly recommend you get it. But what happened is Luther wanted to reform some things, but he he kind of had to deal with what he had, okay? There was a lot in the Roman Catholic Church that needed to be reformed. Luther very much centers in on justification, but he doesn't keep going in other areas. But there were other reformers who said, hey, I'm not sure these other things that we're doing are actually biblical. Uh, It's good that we've gotten justification back, but what about the church? What about the relationship between the church and the state? And so there was what was known as the Radical Reformation that happens in Switzerland. It begins with a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, but really more it's some men that followed him. Okay, And what they did is they said, hey, look, we need to keep reforming. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff we've got to deal with. And one of the things that really heavily animated them was the idea of infant baptism. Okay, And so they were looking in the scriptures and they were saying, Infant baptism is very much, especially when you look in church history, it is very much tied to citizenship, especially by the time you get to the Middle Ages, okay? To to refuse baptism was essentially to renounce your actual earthly citizenship. 
So what you had with these so-called radical reformers was they were saying, hey, why are we baptizing these babies? If, we are, if we're saying that the gospel is the grace of God given that must be responded to in faith, why then are we baptizing these children? This is one of the arguments that they would make. And so there was a group of them who broke away from the sort of reform, the church that was reforming in Switzerland, and they, in a meeting where they got together, they all baptized one another. Okay? Now, word gets out about this. We see this and we're like, well, that's fine, right? But in many ways, that was a renunciation of your earthly citizenship. It was a very, very major thing, and it was a major point of division amongst the reformers. It moved these guys out of the sort of mainline stream of the Reformation. It was a radical thing that they did. For this, they were sort of mocked, and they became known as Anabaptists. You may have heard this term. The term means to baptize again. Okay? They kind of rejected this term because they said that first thing wasn't a baptism. So we're just going to call ourselves Baptist, not Anabaptist. Okay? But they were sort of known in a pejorative sense or a negative sense as Anabaptists. All right? Now, one of the things that they were seeking to do, they were very motivated by the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. Okay, that you use the Bible to form your faith, what you believe, and your practice, how you live. So they were looking, they were applying sola scriptura to the practice of the church, and they were saying, if we're going to do that, then we can't baptize infants. We have to baptize people who profess faith. That was a key thing that the Anabaptists did. The Anabaptists also embraced other doctrines of the Reformation, specifically what's called the priesthood of the believer, You did not need an actual established priesthood. All believers were priests in Jesus and had the right to minister and share the gospel. And so that was another thing that you saw within these Anabaptist churches. Okay, They sort of broke away from the state churches. They also called other believers to evangelize. In practice, they were more separated from the visible churches. Okay, the Luther, what becomes the Lutheran Church, what eventually becomes uh, the Presbyterian Church and the churches associated with John Calvin. Uh, they were more independent and less formal. Okay, they, one of the key distinctions with Anabaptists as opposed to some of those other churches was they took out a lot of the high church liturgical things. Okay? So even if we may agree with what the gospel is, with there's a Lutheran church over by Banner Hall. It's kind of a weird looking church. It's interesting looking. Their Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we would high-five on justification by grace through faith. Okay? We'd be really, we would be on the same team with what the gospel is. We would diverge on infant baptism, and especially if you went to one of their church services, it would feel very high church. Probably feel very, almost Roman Catholic to you in some sense, even though they would be very much not Roman Catholic. All right? That's because of we are in that Anabaptist tradition, okay? More, quote-unquote, low church. Okay, so this happens in the 1500s and in the 1600s, and you've got these uh, Baptist congregations developing, and there's going to be movements in theology, and some in England or are going to actually embrace more Reformation theology while holding on to Baptist practice, okay? That's kind of the origins of what we call Reformed Baptists today. They hold the what's called the 1689 London Confession, um, that's very similar to what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is connected more to Presbyterianism um, in, in both Europe and in the United States. Um, when you get to the 1700s, though, there's this interesting thing that happens. 
There's a big movement in the Reformation, and there's lots that happens. And then things begin to settle down, and as you get into the 1700s, you've got sort of the hardening of these denominations. And in some places, like especially in England and in the United Kingdom, you had a very tight union of church and state. In fact, what's the state church in England called, even today? Do you know what it's called? The Anglican Church. Okay, It literally means the Church of England. All right? So there is a, the, in fact, I think Queen Elizabeth, the monarch, is still technically the head of the Church of England, all right? There's a very tight connection between the church and state. So even though you had movement in understanding of bringing things more in line with Scripture, it doesn't, the Reformation sort of stops or it calcifies a little bit and things kind of harden into denominations in the 1700s. Then there's this movement that happens, okay? It becomes known as the Great Awakening, Okay, where there's a, pre- a preaching of the gospel. Uh, the gospel becomes central again. The, the importance of actual conversion. That like It's not just being baptized in the church and raised in the church and keeping those feasts and doing those other things. There's more to it than that. You have to actually believe. Hi guys, how's it going? Just saying hey. Um, you have to actually believe. This is when you're a high school teacher you can do these things. Um, you have to actually believe the things that you're sitting in the church and learning about, okay? And so this is where you have traveling preachers, George Whitfield. Um, all of this is connected with the Great Awakening. It happens in the United States. It happens in England. It spreads to the continent. You have these congregations that are developing, and you almost have a restoring of that excitement of the Reformation, okay? It sort of kicks off again with the Great Awakening, And what that does in England, and specifically in Ireland, is you get this continuation or a little spark of reformation that pops back up. Okay. Now, I'm wondering if any of you have ever heard the name Jay and Darby. I know some of you have. Okay. What's very interesting is he is often not associated with the Reformation, and yet I think it's very, very in line with the Reformation to refer to him as a reformer. Now, reformed people will lose their minds and rend their garments. Like J.N. Darby is the bugaboo man to your Presbyterian friends, if they even know who he is. He's definitely the bugaboo to your Presbyterian friends pastor. Um, But Darby is a really interesting man. And I want to tell you a little bit about him and the Brethren movement that starts in the early 1800s. Okay, So Darby was, was part of the Church of Ireland, which was the Protestant church in Ireland. Okay, he was a priest, and so he was connected with the state church, ultimately under the control of the English. And in the 1800s, um, there was the, the, what you had was you had the Great Awakening hitting Ireland, and Ireland was incredibly impoverished at this time. And so there were preachers who were going through and they were preaching, and you had these sort of like calcified Roman Catholics. You know, they had been baptized in the Roman Catholic Church because they were Irish, but they were actually hearing the gospel and believing. And what Darby and some of the other people within the what was the Church of Ireland or the Anglican Church in Ireland, they were seeing that the Anglican Church was as calcified in some ways as the old Roman Catholic Church. There wasn't heart there. There wasn't there there wasn't things in line with Scripture. And so Darby, motivated very much by that idea of sola scriptura, he and others began meeting together. Okay, they began meeting together and having the Lord's Supper together and studying the Scriptures together. And so in 1827, he really breaks away from the Church of Ireland and begins holding these meetings. And what happens in Ireland from the 1820s to 1860s, one church historian referred to it as the Second Reformation. 
uh, that you had a movement of thought and development of theology and wanting to conform the church to the teachings of Scripture. All of these things begin to really happen. And so what happens then, he leaves and many others began to leave as well. And there were people leaving the Church of England in England and they were meeting together in these simple little assemblies and reading and studying Scripture and saying, how can we make the church more like the early church? When we look around and we see Westminster Cathedral, we don't see Acts chapter 2. So they're asking, how do we get back to church in its early form or, you know, quote unquote, purest form, whatever that would be. Okay. So they began meeting and uh, a thing that was really important to them was what was called the breaking of bread. Okay. Which was the the Lord's table, taking the Lord's table together. So you had these assemblies of like-minded believers that were meeting all over in Ireland, in England, in Wales, various places like this. Now, here were some of their key distinctives. They appealed to the authority of scripture. Okay. The authority of scripture, trying to read the text not in a wooden literal sense, but letting the text say what it says. Okay, Not importing meaning onto the text, taking meaning from it. Second, they believed the church was to be understood primarily as a spiritual body defined by regeneration. So the church was not just a list of people on the rolls that got baptized. It was the people in there who really proclaimed faith in Jesus, who had really been baptized by the Holy Spirit, Okay, who were true believers. And that... In that sense, then, your external citizenship, while not unimportant, was secondary to your citizenship in heaven, Okay, being a true believer. The other thing they did is they disparaged denominationalism. They said it was actually divisive, Okay, that if the church is supposed to be this spiritual body that has unity in Christ, then denominations break the church, the real church apart. They, they create separation, Okay, and so they're arguing for, can we meet together Can we take communion together? Can we worship together and study scripture together? That's the idea behind the brethren movement. The other thing is they shared an expectation concerning the coming of Christ in light of prophetic scripture. Specifically the idea of the coming of Jesus for the church prior to the beginning of the day of the Lord or tribulation period, which would precede his return, his premillennial return before setting up his kingdom on the earth. We're going to talk about this more next week. Okay, I know it's kind of a mouthful. All right. So there these are the things that sort of characterize them. Now, what's interesting is they begin having these meetings and talking about these things. And this was like all things. It starts off really well. Okay, it starts off with a good heart, with the idea of returning to Scripture. But because we're all sinners by nature and choice, there's no movement that's going to be perfect. Okay, and what happens with the brethren movement, the longer it goes on and the more it formalizes itself you began to have tension between various brethren groups. They were you know, upset with the denominations for dividing Christians, but what would happen is they would discuss and debate a certain point of biblical prophecy and come to two different conclusions. So then those assemblies would separate. Now, some of those assemblies would still worship together and study scripture together, even with their disagreements. Over time, though, you had a serious break in the brethren movement between two groups. One was what were called the open brethren, who even if they had disagreements, they would still commune together and worship together. And then you had a group called the closed brethren or the exclusive brethren. Let me read you just kind of a summation. This is another really good book. If you're interested in some church history, specifically in relation to our church's theological background, there's a book called Forged in Reformation. And it's basically, it's about the idea, the subtitle is How Dispensational Thought Advances the Reformation Legacy. 
Very, very good book. Very interesting um, if you're interested in, in reading some of these things. Listen to how this essay concludes talking about Darby and the Brethren. It says, in many ways, the life of the Irish reformer, J.N. Darby, bears many similarities to the German reformer, Martin Luther. Although separated by more than 200 years and operating in different countries, both men's lives took similar paths. Full of unexpected bends, high mountain peaks, and low valleys, with each one parting company with fellow travelers at a critical fork in the road. Both men were dogged and resolute, firmly bent on the task they felt the Lord had entrusted to them. While Darby made tremendous strides in his lifetime, the same party spirit, or denominational spirit, which divided Luther from Zwingli and the Swiss reformers, affected Darby's life as well. In a similar vein to how the German reformer, at the end of his life, came to reflect the very thing he fought so vividly against, so Darby's obstinate stand contrasted the founding, with the founding principles which energized his early ministry. Okay? All that is just to say the Brethren Movement is extremely important, but there's a reason why we're not a Brethren Church. Okay? Yes. yes, there are definitely Brethren Churches around. Uh, you can find what I would call What I would say about the Brethren is they have what's called a minimalist ecclesiology. Okay, and what I mean by that is like it's like minimalist architecture where it's like a bare room, you know, with like a square window. That's what they're trying to do with the church. They're trying to say, how do you pair off every single thing that isn't like explicitly seen basically in Acts chapter two? Okay, which sounds good on one level, but you have to ask the question, did God intend for every single church and every single place and every single time to look exactly like what Acts two looks like? It's a, the beginning of the movement, and it has centuries to go as it grows and develops. So the brethren reject the idea of like any type of pastoral leadership outside of elders. They do have elders and things like that. They will not call a building a church. The, the church is the people, and we would agree with that, but we're not going to change the name out front for something like that. So we would have a lot in common with the brethren, but you can find really, really good people who are part of the brethren and you can find very eccentric people in the brethren and then that's everywhere um but that's my personal experience with folks my friend james devonish who's british who's preached he's actually preaching next sunday he was raised in the exclusive brethren like the like walled off don't associate with anyone and when he left the church his family cut him off like he did not after he left the church he did not speak to his parents again until they died continual source of hurt for him. But that's how seriously the exclusive brethren take the idea of only fellowshipping with and interacting with believers who they are in agreement with on things. So um, anyway, the brethren movement is very, very important. Okay. Now at the same time, and we are running out of time, um, we're going to go real quick. Sorry, that, there's Darby. I meant to show you his picture. Sweet Darby chops. <clears throat> okay. The other thing that really influences the development of um, the Bible church movement is the rise of what we call Protestant liberalism. Okay, Protestant liberalism. Um, specifically, as you get into the 1800s, <clears throat> advances in archaeology and science and things like this caused people to begin to question Scripture. Okay, well, did, is what the Bible says really true? Is what it says about the origin of man really true? Or is Darwin right? Um, is what... Uh, the Bible claims about the Exodus in Exodus and 
uh, Genesis, Exodus, in, in the Pentateuch. Is that true, or is it more in line with some stuff we're seeing in archaeology, where this looks like something that's completely made up? Or is this story of Noah, is that real? It seems really similar to the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we know that the Hebrews were there in um, Babylon, and they would have interacted with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Maybe they just took that. So this, you had, they had the rise of what was called higher criticism. And in the 1800s or the 19th century, you had a lot of movement in universities and seminaries to try to reconcile the Christian faith with these new movements or new ideas in science and history and philosophy and archaeology. Okay? So you have what eventually develops into what's known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And again, this is where a book on church history will be really good to kind of walk you through this, tell you a little bit about it. What happened is a split begins to form in the church. There were people who said, they interacted with those ideas and said, those things contradict what scripture says, and we're people who are supposed to hold scripture as our ultimate authority. So we have to submit these things to scripture. And then there were others who said, no, no, no. God reveals himself in all ways. So yes, he's revealed in scripture, but he's also revealed himself in history and in, you know, archaeology and things like this. So we need to try to integrate these things together and if necessary, submit what scripture says to what we see in philosophy or in archaeology. Okay? And this is the rise of what we call historical criticism or higher criticism and it becomes Protestant liberalism is another way to say it, okay? This is what happened to all your parents' churches. Okay, if you were um, denomination, if you were a part of a denomination, especially for some of you who are older, um, this is what happened to your parents' churches. Okay, this is why there is a Southern Baptist Church. This is why you have the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, and the PCUSA. Those these denominations divided over these things, over these issues. Okay, now the people who were called fundamentalists, they were saying. No, no, no. We need to hold to the historic teachings of the faith, the historically Christian teachings and the Reformation teachings. These things handed down to us from the, the people who went before us. We don't need to just reject them. In fact, here's a cartoon sort of mocking the modernists. Okay? So these are some of the doctrines that they were uh, getting rid of. Okay? They were saying, well, the Bible is fallible. They were saying man's not made in God's image. A big one was miracles. Okay. Is there a supernatural or does God just reveal himself through natural things? So they get rid of miracles. In light of that, then there's no virgin birth. So in light of that, then, you know, um, Jesus, he's, he was just a really good man teaching us about God. He's not incarnate. Then eventually, so then you get rid of the atonement. Well, if he's just a man, he can't really do something for all of us. And then eventually, well, he doesn't really need to be resurrected. It's about the resurrection of your spirit. Okay. Easter is about... It's like spring when the, when the flowers come out and there's a resurrection of your, your sense of life and, and wonder. That's, what's, that's what Easter's about. And as they make the point, where do you end up? Agnosticism. Ah, well, maybe there's no God. Or ah, we'll just go straight to atheism. There's definitely no God. Okay? So this was sort of a, a fundamentalist cartoon mocking these, this movement in modernism. Okay? Um, one of the guys, there's a really good book by J.I. Packer called Fundamentalism and the Word of God. Very, very good about Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And one of the things, uh, let me read a quote. One of the guys who really fought this battle is a guy named J. Gresham Gresham Machen, uh, who was at Princeton Seminary. And he wrote a book uh, in the 1920s called Christianity and Liberalism. You see what he did there? 
There's one or the other. Because <laughs> at the time it was like, well, no, 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 we're all Christians. You guys are fundamentalists. We're liberals, but we're all Christians. And Machen said there are actually two religions. One is called Christianity and the other one is called liberalism. Here's a quote from Machen. The liberal attempt at reconciling Christianity with modern science has really relinquished everything distinctive of Christianity so that what remains is, in essentials, only that same indefinite type of religious aspiration which was in the world before Christianity came on the scene. Do you see what Machen's saying? He's like, if you get rid of the idea of the miraculous, if you abandon the idea of the virgin birth, if you abandon the idea of a literal resurrection, if you do not believe that Jesus' death does anything, you do not have Christianity. Just because you recite the Apostles' Creed for funsies every few weeks, and just because you sing some hymns because you like the way they sound, you are not Christian. This is why you can go into certain, I'll just say it, you can go to certain like Episcopal churches and there's a nice lady up there and she's got rainbow vestments and she may lead you in reciting the Apostles' Creed. She doesn't believe a word of it. She may lead you in the singing of some hymns and it's nice. You may even read a passage of scripture and then she's going to give you a little 10 minute sermon about how recycling is so important because we need to steward the earth that God gave us. That may be a true application of some biblical text, but that is not Christianity. It has a Christian veneer. It's not Christianity. Okay. And that's what, that's what Machen's point was. And in light of that, then that's how you get to where we start. Okay. There was a Presbyterian minister named Mr. Potts. Okay. Reverend Potts. And he was a part of the Southern Presbytery, and he saw this happening in his own denomination in the early 1900s. And he said, I can't be a part of this, okay? I just can't be a part of this. And this was before it split into the conservative and liberal factions. He just hit the ejection seat. He was like, I'm out. And so he left the, left the Presbytery, which is how, as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, that's how you get jobs. So it was a very brave thing that he did. And he received a call from some ladies. I don't know exactly how the connection was made. Some ladies in Jackson, Mississippi, and they invited him to come here and teach a Bible study. So in the 1940s, that's what he started doing. He started coming and teaching a Bible study in Jackson. Okay? That developed into a tent meeting. I know there's still some tent meetings, especially if you go out into like, you know, some more rural areas of Mississippi. You'll see some tents up and things like that. Our church started as kind of a tent meeting, Bible study slash tent meeting. And I think I've told you all this story before. I think they had met for about six weeks in a row, and then a storm came and blew the tent away. Okay, it was like, it's like Satan was trying to stop the starting of a new church. And they realized, you know what we need to do? We need a more, more permanent structure. Okay, and so it, over in the Greenfield neighborhood of Jackson, they put up this little structure that really wasn't even fully sealed. Okay. And uh, this happened in the late 1940s, okay? Church was organized eventually as Greenfield Chapel, and uh, it continued the ministry of teaching and prayer, and then also sent out their first missionary in the mid-1950s, a lady named Helen Boydston, who for some of you, you still remember. I remember the video that Jerry filmed with Helen um, as an older woman. Um, they, our church sent her out. She was the first missionary our church sent out in the mid-1940s. She was a single lady. She went to the Philippines served faithfully there until she retired and came back to Mississippi. And uh, Bill Ebert, whose father 
um, worked with Helen. His mother and father worked with Helen um, in church planning and eventually starting a Bible school. You're going to hear from Bill in November, and he's going to tell us about the Bible school that's there. That's in large part because our church sent this lady out in the 1950s to serve on a team of missionaries. And it's now a thriving Bible school led primarily by Philippine nationals teaching pastors and training them. All because the people that met in this little building raised some money and sent a lady out. Okay, now Rick can tell you. Rick's been in this little building. How old were you? What do you? How old were you when you were y'all were there? We started when I was six. Okay. So when you see those little kids running around at fellowship meal, that was Rick at this place. Okay. Now, um, the church was here uh, for a while. Um, eventually, uh, Mr. Potts did move on and uh, Dick Barth, uh, Rick's dad, who had moved here to start uh, Friends of Alcoholics ministry um, he did uh, serve as kind of the interim pastor, and he did that a couple of times based on as the church's needs uh, here and there, and served as one of the elders for many, many years. You'll see his name on some of those documents back there uh, as you go through. Uh, but that's where we start, guys, that little building. You know, we sit here on Old Canton Road in this building that's air-conditioned. The walls weren't sealed on this thing, okay? Um, initially then, or after, once, I guess it was late 50s, early 60s, they moved. Okay, they moved to and, and became North State Bible Church. You'll see, got some uh, flyers back there from North State Bible Church. You want to know one of the questions that they were answering? Because they call themselves a Bible church. You know what question they were having to answer all the time? What's a Bible church? Okay, so there's a pamphlet back there that really we should probably just reprint and just send back out. Okay, here's one of the things that they talk about. Okay, I love this. Our motivation is to glorify our wonderful God by faithfully communicating the Lord Jesus Christ and the written word of God to individual people. Our aim is not political, social, economic, nor religious. It's spiritual. Okay. Now, of course, downstream are those things. He's just saying we're not going to make those the major points of focus for us in our church. Our viewpoint is basic, historic, biblical Christianity. That sound familiar? Basic historic biblical Christianity emphasizing accurate and sound premillennial and dispensational interpretation of the scriptures. Christians are oriented to a unique Christian way of life outlined so clearly in the dispensations of the church age. What is our affiliation? An independent Bible church fellowshipping with other believers in Christ of like viewpoint, but not organically related to any denomination, council, or group of churches. We are not, I love this, we are not a cult, nor some novel religious fad. <laughs> Hundreds of independent churches exist today, as in the days of the New Testament, okay? This is printed in the 60s, all right? So, all of these things, okay, uh, the church grew larger, it eventually moves to North State Street, and I didn't know exactly where it was, Rick actually just sent me a picture, I'll show it to you next week, of the house where they met on North State Street, and so the church... Uh, was meeting in a home. Um, Rick said they had some Sunday school buildings off on the property. Um, and then in the late 60s, they purchased this property right here, 5228 Old Canton Road. There were two houses on this property. You can probably look at our buildings and figure out which two were the houses. And uh, they purchased it. What is now the uh, kind of main Sunday school building was the auditorium where they gathered for worship for many years. 
And so uh, that was under uh, eventually the leadership transition to a pastor named Ken Shepard. And uh, they met there for several years. And then eventually in 1973, they built the auditorium over there. Okay. Um, I think it was 73. It was either 71 or 73. I don't think I wrote it down. Um, and then this building was completed when, Jerry? Early 80s? When was the Fellowship Hall completed, Ron? Say again? Mid 80s. Mid 80s. Okay, Bill's, Bill's been here a long time, too. Bill, what's the. Where, did you meet before it was here? You went to North State. Okay. All right. So all of that, guys, is kind of how we got here. Okay. And I just want to tell you, again, if you want to know more about some specifics of our history, I've got those documents back there that have more detail. Okay. And again, I wasn't around for a lot of it. So I would encourage you to ask uh, Rick or Bill back there if you've got some more specifics. Ron, what year did you become an elder? 78. So Ron's been an elder at the church since 78. So he can give you some uh, thoughts on things. And when did y'all, what year did you and Miss Betty come? Came in 75. 75, okay. So Rick goes, I mean, uh, Ron goes back to 75. Yes, Miss Janie. Miss Janie, when did you, do you remember North State as well? All right, so Miss Janie's got insight too. <laughs> well, y'all are just all, uh, y'all should have had y'all teaching this. Um, I wanted to, I really wanted though to like pair up a little bit about our church's specific history with movements in church history, just so you don't feel disconnected. It's easy, it's easy to feel disconnected, okay? And I need you to see that you're a part of what God has been doing in the world going back to Acts chapter 2, okay? Specifically going back to a key movement in the Reformation, okay? And so from the Anabaptists, we get our independence, we get our view of believers' baptism. From the brethren, we get our understanding of eschatology, okay, and some aspects of how we view leadership in the church and how it functions. We'll talk more about these things in the coming weeks, okay? But all of these things to encourage you. This is who we are. These are the people that have gone before us. They were faithful. Now it's our chance, okay? Now it's our turn to be faithful and to hand this on to that crew that's in there that I yelled at earlier, okay? So we got our hands full just like our parents had their hands full, so... All right, any questions? And again, I, this is this got to be brief because i got to go over. i got to do this again in a few minutes. So. Any questions? All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together, and thank you for these things and just seeing this big sweep of history. Uh, Lord, would you give us um, a love and a desire to understand the things that you've been doing in the world and to pair those things up and see how they fit with Scripture? Um, how scripture illumines history and shows uh, the fact that Jesus is building his church. And uh, just thank you for the way you've been faithful to our church, Lord. And we ask that we would be found faithful in the days that you've given to us, Lord. Thank you that the same spirit who guided those who have come before us is the one who guides us now. So we just give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.